Hey, community of faith, we're so glad to be back with you this week. I know that it's been a long quarantine. I hope you're doing okay. Laura and I are excited to share with you about marriage again today. You know, when you're alone together for extended periods of time, you just begin to ask each other hypothetical questions. Laura asked me a hypothetical this week. She said, if a man is alone in the woods and his wife's not around to hear him and he says something, is he still wrong? I don't know the answer to that, but I, I said yes, dear, because that's one of my secrets for a great marriage. Yes, dear. Uh, you know, I love a good mystery. Maybe you love a good mystery. Laura, she loves to watch those real life mysteries like Dateline. You know, she watches Dateline. She has it like 20 of them recorded, you know, on our DVR. It's amazing. And I don't like Dateline as much as she does because I figured out it's always the husband that did it. Oh, it's always the husband, you know, even if the husband dies, the husband did it. But there's a, a guy on there that I've, I've come to really love, and that's Keith Morrison. I don't know if you've heard him or not. I kind of call him the Dr. Seuss of murder. You know, he, he's the one that says, could it have been her loving husband or was it? You know, and he always comes in. This, he sounds just like that. And I was thinking about Keith Morrison. We're going to talk to you about a, the mystery of marriage today. What if Keith Morrison could share that with us? It would just be awesome if we could have had him in here because he would say, Susie's getting married. Just plain, ordinary marriage. But is there anything ordinary about marriage? And as Susie gets married on her wedding day, she thinks she knows everything that's coming. But does she? I love that. You know, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to find out what happened to Susie. Not really in Susie in particular, but what happened to you? What happened when you got married? Some of you are going, I think I know what happened. I think you might not because we're going to discover this is a deep mystery. Now, I want to encourage all of you, if you're not married yet or if you've been through divorce, you know, some of you, you had to get out of abusive relationships. We're not talking about that today. We're talking about starting right where you are. We're talking about um, doing what Jesus says to do. And he even gives us an out in marriage for unfaithfulness and things like that. But there's this secret to marriage that I want you to find today that's so much deeper than what our culture says. In fact, you know, it's interesting because 40% of our culture uh, of the people in our culture today say that marriage is antiquated, that marriage is outdated, that it, it, it's probably not really necessary anymore. But as we dive deep into this mystery, Paul called it a profound mystery, we'll see, of marriage, I think we're going to see that it's not the fact that marriage is outdated, but that our culture has totally misunderstood the purpose, the point the reason for marriage. For You see, marriage is connected to God's design and purpose for the entire universe. That's what we're going to find out. Since the Garden of Eden, before mankind's fall into sin, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, uh, God instituted this profound mystery, this marriage. And in fact, the verses that I'm getting ready to read to you refer all the way back to verses that are found in the book of Genesis. Listen to what the Bible says about marriage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy, blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. As we look at the, the mystery of marriage, what if marriage contains a meaning and a purpose that's far greater than what we've understood in our culture? The verses that say, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one. This is a profound mystery. That, that verse is the verse that's found all the way back in the very first part of Genesis, when God put Adam and Eve together in the garden. And Moses, years later, wrote about that. Paul says that this word of God spoken by Moses is a mysterious reference to, to something that Adam and Eve and, and even Moses didn't, didn't know anything about. It's pointing to a relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. You know, if there's one thing that I've learned about God, God doesn't do things without purpose. Everything he does is on purpose, right, Laura? Uh, when God created marriage, he didn't roll dice or flip a coin or just say, well, let's see how this works out. He patterned marriage very carefully so that it would reflect the relationship between his son and the church, which he planned from all of eternity past. But what's even more, and this is what I think a lot of us have never understood, is that marriage would be the tool that would prepare us to walk with him, rule with him, reign with him in love and oneness forever. You see, from the recesses of eternity past, before there was ever a world or a man or a woman, God had a plan to create another, a friend, a family, a bride, a body, to walk with him in oneness into forever. He named us, he called us, in, in the New Testament we're called ecclesia, the called out ones, the body of believers, his, his church. And as we dig into the Bible and see what it says, the mystery of marriage, the insight becomes clear that all of God's plans in the creation of man, from the creation to the choosing of the Jewish people, to Jesus coming and, and dying for us, the history of everything we know was moving toward the creation of his church. This is an amazing thing. And that this church would become one with him forever, ruling, reigning, sitting on the throne of the universe with him. Marriage is a God creation. And down through human history, there has been and there still is a mystery and a meaning and a purpose that's far greater than what our culture understands. The second thing we want you to see today is the vision of marriage. I don't know about you, but I certainly had a vision for my marriage. 
Cinderella was my favorite movie. It probably still is my favorite movie. And my plan was that I would be swept off my feet by Prince Charming and we would live happily ever after. Mark was my Prince Charming and, and that's what I thought was gonna happen. And admittedly, that's a pretty childish vision of marriage, but it can't even remotely compare to God's vision of marriage. I mean, they are poles apart. They're in different galaxies, God's vision and my vision. I mean, they were not even close. God's vision is so far beyond everything that I could ever even imagine that a marriage would be or should be. And I'm guessing the same is true for you. When I said I do, I mean, I didn't. I didn't really know what I was saying. I didn't know what those words meant. My vision involved me changing a little bit, becoming, you know, looking better, maybe becoming more like Cinderella. We were going to be happy and have all of the things that we wanted. And it took only a couple of months before Mark and I both realized that um, that wasn't happening, <laughs> that God really wasn't interested in how I looked or if I had the things that I thought I needed or wanted. God's vision was totally different. And about seven years into this thing, I, I mean, we were done. Mm -hmm. We were done. We thought it was over. Mark had left. I was home with the kids. And really broken, not realizing what God's vision was. My vision, my dream had died. And I realized that God had been working in cross purposes or, or more truthfully, I had been working at cross purposes with God. I'd been trying to change Mark. I'd been trying to change our circumstances when all along God's vision was something different. God's vision was to change me, to completely break me down and rebuild me in his image. That's God's vision for marriage. And when we got married, I had no idea that that's what God was going to do, that that was what God wanted to use my relationship with Mark to accomplish that he was gonna use it in my life. And my guess is that you didn't know that was his plan either. And I think sometimes that causes a lot of the issues that we have in our relationships. I truly believe that there's gonna come a time in your marriage, maybe multiple times over the course of years, that you realize this truth, that you realize that God's plans are not your plans. His plans are not my plans. Maybe for you that moment is now you're realizing for the very first time that the issues in your relationship, it's not your spouse and it's not your circumstances, but it's the fact that you've been working at cross purposes with what God was trying to accomplish in your marriage, working at cross purposes with God's vision. God's vision was to transform me, to transform you into a completely wholly different new person. That's his vision for your marriage. It's like the caterpillar, caterpillar becoming a butterfly. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, if you remember. But the caterpillar crawls into that cocoon and the work of transformation begins. He's broken down completely to the cellular level and then rebuilt into something completely new, transformed into a whole new creation. And he crawls out of that cocoon and he's a beautiful, new creature, something wholly different, wholly new than what he was when he went in. That's the work that God is trying to do. Here's how God describes that metamorphosis. The two will become one flesh. That's God's vision. 
two distinct individuals coming together and in the cocoon of marriage, they become a whole new creature. That's what God is trying to do. I mean, no one ever warned me about that. I don't know about you, but I had no idea. God brings us together. He bathes us in his love and he uses that sweet cocoon to completely disassemble our hearts and reassemble them into something new. That's his vision for marriage. And that's a pretty big undertaking, honestly. I mean, God's been working on us for 36 years now. He's had a hard time with Mark. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's not. probably more likely than me. It's both of us. But God's been working. And one of the most revolutionary tools he has to transform your heart is your marriage and that relationship that you have with your spouse. The problem is that we both come to this marriage as two individual people. I mean, I've been living in my world. It's all about me. I'm on the throne. I'm in control. I'm in charge. It's all about my needs, my wants, my desires, my dreams, my hopes. Everything's about me. My world revolves around me. I'm the main character. And then we get married and everything changes. You know, somehow love comes along. We meet that person and everything changes. Love is a powerful thing. It's more than just a, a fuzzy feeling. I mean, it would take something pretty powerful, honestly, to make two people stand up together in front of God and everybody they love and say, I'm going to commit myself for the rest of my life to be with you. I mean, that doesn't just happen. That's love. And honestly, that's God. He chose that person for you to bring you together to fulfill his vision, to make you into something new. And you know, in that moment, we said some little words to each other. They call them vows, but we really didn't know what we were saying. We had no idea. I mean, maybe you thought it was just a tradition, those things that you said. You had no idea the power that you were stepping into, the vision that God had for your life going forward. At least I know I didn't, and I had no idea what it was going to cost me. Mm. So uh, that's so true. The, the vision that God has for marriage is so far beyond what we've ever been taught that we're not prepared at all. And the cost of marriage? Wow, I mean, if someone would have just told us the cost of marriage. One time, Jesus was sitting around with his disciples and they said, let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about that a little bit. And, and, and so when Jesus had finished talking to them about marriage, you know what they said to him? Jesus, then who in their right mind would get married? That's the question in a sense, because we don't understand the cost. Listen to what the Bible says. It says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's one thing I can say with certainty about you, because I know it was so true of us. There's no way when you stood on your wedding day that you understood the cost of marriage, what marriage was going to cost you. Because see, there's this tricky little thing called love that Laura talked about. Love convinces a couple that they're the greatest romance that has ever been and that, that no two people have ever loved like they have and that no sacrifice will be too great. That's what love says, but then marriage says, prove it. Marriage is the closest bond that's possible between two human beings. I mean, at least that was the original idea behind it. 
And such extraordinary closeness comes at a huge cost. The cost is nothing more, nothing less than, than one's own self. No one has ever been married without being shocked. I mean, totally and absolutely shocked at the enormity of the price. The monstrous inconvenience of this thing called intimacy that suddenly invades one's life. You know, at, at, at a wedding, the bride and groom have gone through the motions. They, a lot of times they've done that little candle lighting ceremony, you know. We have that a lot, and it's so beautiful where you light the one in the middle and you turn and blow out. If you hopefully remember to turn, because a lot of times I'll have them when I'm doing the wedding, they'll blow and then their, their unity candle blows out too, which I always take as not a good sign. But, you know, they've lit that one candle in the central place, and it's just beautiful, but it's cute. How touching the simplicity of this little ritual, but how little it has in common with the actual day-to-day -day pressures of two persons being merged into one. I mean, it's, it's, a different, it's a different matter when the flame that has to be extinguished is not the little flicker of that candle, but the, the blistering inferno of self-will that I bring to this marriage, my independence that I bring to this marriage. There's really nothing like this lifelong cauterization of the ego that must take place in marriage. Have you ever caught yourself disagreeing with, with the God who runs the universe? I don't know about you, but maybe every other day, you know. If I was God, you say stuff like that. But here's the truth. If we really know ourselves, if I were God, if I really were God and had been from the beginning, it, it's highly unlikely there would be any creation here at all. I mean, seriously, think about it. I mean, this whole bothersome business of little impudent beings running around that turn around and spit in your face, say, you're not going to rule over me. I mean, why burden myself with a creation like that, especially when, when, you know, I could just be quite happy all in all in myself, the whole of everything. I mean, I'm God, right? Self-centered forever and ever. Amen. That's us, but that's not God. See, God is the antithesis of self-centered. He's not like that at all. And, and like God himself, he created marriage and it comes with this built-in resistance to self-centeredness. In the dream world of all our pleasant little fantasies of the world revolving around us, marriage explodes like a hydrogen bomb. It wages an unrelenting guerrilla warfare against selfishness. You know, in this message, we're going to describe marriage in some unconventional ways. We're going to tell you the, the straight truth about what marriage is. If you find yourself the new in the, saying, well, the new in the right mind would get married, then we probably hit it right. The first thing you, I wanted you to see about marriage is that it's a trap. We're caught in this still trap of marriage. And, and we, we do a lot of squirming and struggling but you have to wake up to the fact that there's only one way to get untrapped, and that is to relax in God's hands and start learning more about love than you ever wanted to know. I mean, we think we want to know, but we don't really want to know because the cost is so high. Let me just read to you how author Mike Mason puts it. I couldn't put it better. He says, one of the chief characteristics of real love is that it asks for everything. Not just a little bit, 
not a whole lot, everything. And unless one is challenged to give everything, one is really not in love. But how hard it is to give everything. Indeed, it's impossible. One can make a symbolic gesture of giving all accompanied by a grand dramatic statement. That's what a wedding is. But that's just the start. The wedding is the beginning of a lifelong process of handing over absolutely everything. And not simply everything that one owns, but everything that one is. And there's no one, says Mike Mason, who's not broken by that experience, by that process. It's excruciating, inexorable. No one can stand up to it. Everyone gets broken on the wheel of love. And the breaking that takes place, it's like nothing else under the sun. It's not like the breaking that happens in bankruptcy or crop failure or the loss of a job or the collapse of a lifetime's work. It's not even like the breaking that takes place in a body racked by painful disease. In marriage, the breaking that is done is done by the heel of love itself. It is not physical pain or natural disaster, but it's love that breaks us. And that is the hardest thing to take. No hurt hurts like that. When anything goes wrong in a marriage, the place that's affected is that place of love. And that's the vulnerable place in all of human relationships. You know, we can always hide and not be vulnerable with most people that we meet, but with our spouse, it's not possible. In the relationship of marriage, it's this very quality of vulnerability, says Mike Mason, that's exposed. And this is the thing that can prove to be too much, too much to handle. And many give up and run away, their entire lives collapsing in ruins. But even those who hang on face inevitable ruin, he says, for they must be broken too. There's a big difference, though, between those who hang on and those who, who run away, between the marriages that last and are good and the others that either break up or drag on in a, in a state of unresolved tension or neurosis or, or psychosis. Both must endure ruin, but the difference lies in the place that the ruin is experienced. Because you see, if we stick with it, what we find, what comes to an end is our ego. And that's where the wound is. It's our ego. It's not the place of love, but it's a place of ego, like a palace where we rule and we reign and we're the you know, author of everything and, and the whole world revolves around us. Marriage involves a continuous daily renewal of a decision that can only be made by the grace of God. And that's the giving up of ourselves. And if that weren't enough, <laughs> the giving up of yourself continually day after day over and over for your spouse. The other thing I want you to see is that marriage is also a knife, that God uses it as a knife. It's that picture of the scalpel in surgery, if you could imagine. Or listen to Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. He's talking about the sharpening of a blade. I don't know if you've ever sharpened a knife, but you use sandpaper, or you use a stone, or you use another knife. And, and there's nowhere more true than in marriage that God uses each other. We, God uses Mark in my life and me in his life to sharpen one another. And we become like that sandpaper. We become like that hard stone for one another. Listen to the passion translation of that verse. It takes a grinding wheel to sharpen a blade 
and so one person sharpens the character of another. That's what God does in marriage. And I remember, like I told you, when we were seven years into this thing and, and thinking it was over, that we were done, that God, as I was home by myself and struggling and broken, and I remember spending time just praying and searching the scripture and, and honestly trying to figure out my next step and what was I going to do without Mark um, as part of my life and part of our family. Um, and I remember coming to Isaiah chapter 54, and God just kind of gave that to me and said, Here, here's your life. I'm laying it out before you. Here's how I want you to live. And Isaiah 54, 16 says this, See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And God just used that verse to speak to my heart. And he said, Laura, this is what I'm doing. I am at work in your life. You think this is over, but this is just the beginning. I've got you on the anvil. Now I'm ready to sharpen the blade. And if you'll just allow me to do that. He said he was using all the hurt and all the anger and all the struggle. And he said, I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to refine you. I'm going to sharpen you. I'm going to make you into everything I designed you to be so that I can use you for my purposes. That's what marriage does. That's what God is trying to do in your life through your marriage using your spouse. He put us together so that we could grind one another and not in the way that you probably think of grinding. So that we could scrape one another, scrape off those rough edges. <coughs> that word scrape for me, it, it just it feels to me like when you scrape your fingers on a chalkboard. I don't like the sound of that word, but I think that's exactly what that word means. It reminds me of as a child, you know, you're riding your bike and you fall and you scrape your knee. And what happens? I mean, it's, it's red and pretty soon it starts oozing blood and it's just kind of tender for days, maybe for weeks, depending on what kind of bike crash you had. But that's what God's talking about in your marriage, that you're going to do that for one another. You've felt that in your relationship before, right? That scraping, the oozing, the tenderness. That's what God says marriage is. That's why we're designed to be so different from one another, because God wants to use that spouse to make you into who he designed you to be. And if you've been married for any length of time, you understand that your spouse is completely other than you, right? Nothing like you in any way. And that's by design. That's on purpose because God wants to use them in your life. And when yourself begins to rub up against that spouse that you're married to, the person that they are, you recognize the otherness and you feel it. And it's going to do some things in your life. And God says, I want to use that to create a sharpened edge in you, to bring you to a fine point so I can use you. The Bible says he created you to be a weapon to be used. And that's how he does it. And it's painful to be sharpened. It's painful. And at the same time, it's an incredible experience to see God use another person in your life to refine your character, to make you who he wants you to be. Marriage is that kind of adventure. All those years ago, and countless times since, God has said to me, I'm working in your life. I'm going to use Mark to help you be who I want you to be. 
Now will you surrender? Will you climb up onto the anvil and let me do the work? He loves you enough to do that. That's why he designed for marriage to work in your life. So marriage is this powerful tool that, uh, you know, it's definitely not all fun and games, that's for sure. In fact, um, in some senses, marriage is like a wound. You know, in the, in the book of Genesis, it says that God opened up the side of Adam and took out part of him and created a woman. And it's almost like as if in marriage, it's like God opens up our side again and begins to put us back together to becoming one. Not the man or the woman, but this whole other creation that he intended for us to be. And it's painful. That process it is a painful process. I mean, it's private territory for both of us, the man or the woman. And, you know, it, it's, it's the same way that Jesus takes us to himself. And that's why there's so many similarities. He unites us to him and to all that he is. That's what he was doing on the cross. That's why it was so painful. You know, when marriages break up, it, it's, it's so difficult because there's this message that goes out to the next generation that, that the Father's heart isn't to be trusted. I'm talking about the Heavenly Father because it's so interconnected, we don't realize that. But marriage was intended to be such a, a faithful, loyal, unbreakable bond between a husband and wife that it would demonstrate the love of God, the faithfulness of our Father, and that the world would understand the security of, of a faithful heart. Staying married is not mainly about staying in love, but about keeping covenant together. You know, as Laura and I have focused on keeping covenant, it's amazing what the love has done and how it has exploded, how it has grown, how it has become more than anything that we could ever imagine. But this whole idea generates a lot of heat in our culture today because the biblical viewpoint is about as diametrically opposed to what the world would say love is, marriage is about as it could be. And I think it has some profound cultural implications. Did you know that in our country alone, that of those under age 30, that they see God as distant, is what these different studies have found. They see, many of them say things like, God has abandoned me, or I don't trust God, or I don't need God. Who is God anyway? Why would I think he cares? Did you know that only two in 10 of Americans under 30 believe attending church is important or worthwhile. It's an all-time low. 59% of those under 30 raised in a church have dropped out. 35% of those under 30 have an anti-church stance, believing the church does more harm than good. And under 30s are the least likely age group of anyone to attend church. Listen to this letter from a 20-something. He said, you see church leaders, our generation just isn't interested in playing church anymore. My generation craves relationship, to have someone walk beside them through the muck. We're the generation with the highest ever percentage of fatherless homes. We're looking for mentors who are authentically invested in our lives and our future. Feel free to write me off as just another angry, selfie-addicted 20-something. Believe me, at this point, I'm beyond used to being abandoned and ignored. What's wrong? You see, we can point to a lot of things in our culture, but I would say that there is still something about our marriages that are failing the next generation. Marriage is not about a joining of two worlds, but 
an abandoning of two worlds, really, in order that a whole new one can be formed. And it really echoes the sense that Jesus said when he says, you have to leave everything to follow me. If you choose me, you choose me. Everything else goes to the past. Everything else is done. Everything else is abandoned. Your desires, your time, your change, all of those things. And that's the thing is, in marriage, there's some of that same similarity. We, we become more, but at the same time, we give up of ourselves. I think marriage is so incredibly impossible that it could have only been invented by God. And it can only be carried out by the means of his power. That's why it's so important to be a believer, to know God. Because as we know and trust him, then we can begin to give more of ourselves. And the foundation of marriage is not love, but those simple vows that you gave to each other on your wedding day. I mean, it's one thing to promise to pick up your girlfriend at eight o'clock and try to be there on time. It's a whole other thing to say, I'm giving you the rest of my life. I'll stay faithful to you, to you one and only till death do us part. And those are the, the little vows that we make. We say these things, these simple phrases, but they're so powerful. And a vow is, is not like the signing of a, a legal contract. It's not like any other form of human promise. A person cannot promise to love another person. You can only vow to love another person. Because a vow, to keep a vow, is to devote the rest of one's life to, to discovering what the vow means. And, and to be willing to change and to grow accordingly. You grow into those vows. The most practical level, vows hold marriage together. It's really just another way of what Laura and I say all the time, that love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not something that comes and goes. It's not the song, I've lost that love and feel it, or love the one you're with, or whatever, you know, but it's an act of the will. Listen to Mike Mason one more time. He says, love is an exclamation mark, but the vow asks a question. How bright is the sun, exclaims love, while the vow asks, how dark a night are you prepared to pass through? See, marriages that are dependent on good feelings fall apart. But marriages that cons consistently look back to the vows, those wild promises, as simple as they were, made before God to trust Him, to live that out, they find a continual sense of strength and renewal. It's really important that in marriage, there's always a way out. And the way out that God wants for most of us, barring abuse, barring unfaithfulness, barring some of these things, it's not divorce. No matter how bad things may get, it's to, to put everything that we have back on the line again, just as we did the moment we took our vows. We return to an attitude of, of total abandonment, of throwing all our, our, our natural cells and caution and defensiveness to the winds and, and putting ourselves entirely in the hands of God. But instead of falling into love this time, we might have to grit our teeth and march into it. That's what Laura and I found at year seven, 
we began to do some things. And Laura's going to give you the one thing here in just a second. And it changed everything for her. And actually, that reverberated over to me and changed things for me. But we, by an act of our will, chose to do some things. And as we moved into that, without all those romantic feelings that we had at first, God began to do something as we made each little choice. It's a far stranger thing in our world, in our culture, for two people to live together in love all their lives than not to. And the thing is, it involves a decision so staggering that it really can't really be made at all. It can only be grown into little by little. If you had to make that decision all at once, you, you could never do it. And, and I think the best we can do is kind of like consent to it with an ever-decreasing reluctance, in a sense. And marriage, in truth, is it's more difficult. It's more encompassing than we want it to be. It always turns out to be more than we bargained for. That's how God designed it. It was meant to be a lifelong encounter that would change everything that would be more than you would have chosen if you knew what you were getting into. And that's what some of you are thinking right now. This is way more than I thought, you know. I took him for good. I took him for better. took him for worse. He's a lot worse than I took him for, you know. And we look at that and it's like only marriage as we continually choose can take us into the deep waters of what God's trying to do in our life. It's kind of an amazing human parable of Jesus' love for us, for his church. I mean, look what Jesus did. He, he put all his eggs in one basket, yours. Why would he do that? He loved you so much that he gave his very life for you. And when you choose him, what do you do? You do the same thing. I'm putting all my eggs in one basket, yours, Jesus. I believe you. I trust you. I step into this relationship with you. Love is more than the way we practice for the world to come. Love is the world to come. Now, Laura and I didn't want this to be discouraging, and I know that it's heavy, but I know you can take it, community of faith. And here's the thing. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. There's something about knowing the truth that begins to release these shackles in us. Because some of us, we thought, it shouldn't be like this. This is not the way it's supposed to look. This is not how I'm supposed to feel. That's not what Hollywood says. And God says, I'm doing a deep work in you. I'm taking you into all that I have for you so you can rule and reign with me forever, so you can be my bride forever. It's an amazing thing that he does. But let's focus down on just one simple thing because I don't want you to be overwhelmed. I did want you to take in, okay, the information because there's something that's going to set you free in that this week. You watch, as heavy as it was. But Laura wants to share with you the thing that changed her life at year seven in our marriage. 
We have been giving you one thing to practice every week. The very first week we talked about spiritual breathing. Last week we talked about the practice of gratitude, the habit of gratitude. If you didn't hear those messages, you can go back and find them on our webpage or on YouTube, but go and listen to those. The thing today that we wanna ask you to do this week is to spend time with God daily, to make a habit of spending time with God every day. People often ask me, you know, what would you say? What's the best advice you would give to a married couple or somebody getting married? And that's it. It's as simple as that. No matter how heavy all these things are that we talked about, if you'll spend time alone with God every day, you can make it through anything, honestly. Like I told you, a couple of months in, we were struggling by year seven. We thought we were done. And before that, leading up to that, um, in between, you know, there was a period of time where uh, Mark was trying to help me along the way in my spiritual life. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't super appreciative of it, but he would ask me every day, he would say, Laura, did you spend time with God today? Because obviously he didn't. Because, yeah, I'm sure he thought I wasn't. And uh, I would just kind of ignore him. And I have a little bit of that rebel in me that if you tell me what I need to do, I'm going to automatically not do that just because you told me I need to do that. And so he would ask, you know, every day, did you spend time with God today? And I would just look at him and glare. But there came a day where God kind of woke me up and he said, hey, what Mark's saying is right. I'm waiting for you. I want to spend time with you. And not wanting Mark to know that I was taking his advice, he would leave for work and I would secretly then go and spend time. Just pulled out my Bible and started reading a little bit every day. I think at that time I started in the Psalms, reading just a book of the Psalms every day and spending just a few minutes saying, God, I'm here. I'm here. Please speak to me. Please help me. I mean, that was mostly my prayer. Like we're going under. I need you to help me. I need you to do something because I've tried everything and my things aren't working. And I spend it, started spending time secretly alone with God every day. And I honestly believe that that's what saved our marriage, yes. saved my life, you know, saved my, my everything that I am, that God began to work. He met me there in those quiet moments every day. And it wasn't like a big flash of lightning or some great miracle that took place overnight, but it was the consistency of spending time with him every day. And I began to see my heart change and I saw God work in me. You know, when we put our focus on him, then he focuses on us and begins to do that work in our hearts. And it changed from me saying, Mark needs to change and the circumstances need to change and everything needs to be different and I'm unhappy to God saying, I'm working in you and I'm changing you, hang on. You know, it's interesting because as God began to work in Laura's heart, he began to work in my heart and he used her. And, and, and instead of it being like this slanted thing where I'm saying, let me teach you something or, or show you something. This is, that's not a relationship. That's, a, that's like a, a, a teacher and a pupil, and that's not supposed to be that way. Or, or a, a parent and a child or something like that. And, and Laura, she knows more than I do about all of this stuff. And when I got that like evened up and God said, focus on you, it's your issues, your stuff. I mean, it was me more than her by, uh, uh, I don't know, 90, 10 probably. And it's, it's amazing though, as I began to spend time with God and that began to, I began to see that and it began to change our whole relationship, even the way we related to each other. 
because the way God relates is so different than the way we do. And as he just did that out through us, it changed everything. You may remember the story in the book of Luke of Mary and Martha, and Jesus had, was visiting in their home. He'd come to spend time with them and have a meal, and Martha got really upset with her sister because she wasn't helping her get lunch on the table. She'd instead gone and sat at Jesus' feet and was just listening to him talk. And when Martha complained to Jesus, listen to what he said to her. Oh, Martha, Martha, you are so anxious and concerned about a million details, but really, only one thing matters. Mary has chosen that one thing, and it won't be taken away from her. Those are some of the most profound words that Jesus ever spoke. Only one thing really matters. What was the one thing? It was sitting at Jesus' feet. It was listening to Jesus. That's pretty simple, and we can all do that. Whatever the state of your marriage, whatever the state of your relationship, you can sit at Jesus' feet. In your life, in your marriage, in your career, in your family, only one thing really matters. Are you sitting at the feet of Jesus? Are you spending time with him? Are you listening to him? That's what we want you to do this week. Take time to sit with Jesus every day. If you're not sure what that means or how to do it, just get your Bible out, read a couple of verses, ask God to speak to your heart, and then be quiet. Just sit there with him. Spend a little time praying if you want to. If you don't own a Bible, you can find the Bible app really easily on your phone. If you don't have access to that or a way to do that, write in the comments and tell us that you need a Bible or send an, an email to info at cof.church. We'll make sure you get a Bible this week. But spend time with God doing that this week. I was talking to a friend the other day, Dick Hill. He serves on our staff here at Community of Faith. And Dick was married for 37 years to his wife, Dot. Dot was one of those people that just lit up the room when she walked in. You know people like that. She was that kind of a person. But for the last several years of their marriage, Doc, Dot was very sick. And she ended up in a place where she was bedridden and had to be taken care of all the time. And, and Dick did that for her, and, and he loved her across the years. And I want you to hear what he told me about their marriage just the other day. Dick said, I was chosen to be the one who would love her and be loved by her. God is perfect in his plan for us. When you love someone who needs you, there is a depth of love unimaginable. Everything that the world thinks is important seems so temporal. What you drive, what color you paint the room, what you wear, and on and on. But to be able to kiss her face every day is joy unspeakable. It's a treasure to come in a room and have a faint voice whisper, I love you. I can hardly contain it. I would choose that life again and again. I've been so blessed. That's the mystery of marriage. I've heard it described this way. Marriage is not primarily a call to happiness and prosperity, but a challenge to bear up under difficulties and endure hardship. It's allowing God to do the work of transformation in your heart. And as you do, you find the most beautiful human relationship that you never could have possibly imagined. That's the mystery of marriage. It's a glimpse of the love of God. Will you pray with me? God, these things are hard. It's so hard for us to even begin to understand the depth of your love for us and the things that you want to do for us, the plan that you have, the vision 
that you have. And God, many of us I know today are struggling in our marriage, struggling in our relationships, struggling to find any purpose and any meaning behind what we're going through. God, I pray in particular for those people today that you would be very real to them, that as they sit with you this week, as they spend time just at your feet, that you would make it very clear to them that you are there, that you love them, that you are working, that you have a good plan. God, I pray that you would strengthen each one of us to walk with you into the dark places, to walk with you into the hard places, and to walk with you as you do the work of transformation in our hearts, Lord. May we look to you and trust you and wait for you. And we thank you for what you're doing, what you're going to do, and for the beauty of marriage that you have planned and designed for every one of us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We love you, community of faith, and we just want you to know that we're committed to you full out, even to share with you the hard things. You see, until we come to this place, all of the, the, the neat little principles like love languages and communication skills and some of these things, they're not going to be enough. But once we understand this and we step into this with all that we are, a lot of those other things can come into play too. We love you. I hope you have a great week. Do the one thing, whether you're married or not, you can spend time with Jesus every single day. We love you so much. We'll see you. Have a good week.